Hello, and welcome back to the What The Fork podcast in association with Viper Goalkeeping. Hello, and welcome back to the What The Fork podcast. Today's guest is a man who scored almost 200 league goals throughout his career, with 65 of them coming in England. Welcome to the show, Jan Fjordov. How are you doing? Are you well? I'm okay. And yourself? Are you okay? Yeah, I was just a bit worried that I was pronouncing the name incorrectly, but I got it right, didn't I? Well, I put it this way. I got two letters. We got three letters in Norway that nobody else in the world more or less have, and I got two of them. So it's always been a trouble, but you did okay. I thought I did, I thought I did decent enough. I thought I tried my best. It was, it was handy having a, a Danish player on a couple of weeks ago. That kind of helped me out. But as you say, there's a few letters in there. I'm thinking, am I pronouncing that right? Am I getting it totally wrong? But you've got to just go for it. So thanks for that. But before we delve into your career, let's be honest, you've had a bit of an action-packed post-career. But for those who don't know, what the devil have you been up to? Well, uh, when I moved, I, I started, with, I'll probably go back to it, but I started my career in Norway, but I, I went to Vienna when I was 22, and uh, which was quite young at the time to go abroad. And then I learned quite quickly how football, politics, commercial, culture and everything was more or less in one. So I, so I'm, I had my eyes open, I had my ears open, and I was able to learn from a lot of good people. So I when I, when I ended my career, I started with my communication company. And uh, a part of it is, of course, TV and doing uh, the same thing that a lot of uh, former footballers do. But I've, I've taken on from there. So now I'm advising big companies, uh, politicians, and so on and so on, and try to make, uh, make arenas where these people can meet up. I was reading through sort of what you'd done since you'd left. And I'd known for a little while, but I kind of updated myself just as part of my research. And you could do your own podcast based on your post-career, let alone your actual football career. It's been uh, varied, but incredibly interesting. But have you enjoyed it? Has it been fun going through that like slightly different route compared to what some footballers do? Well, I think a lot of footballers and a lot of sports people, I've talked a lot, to, a lot of, uh, with them. And it's that after your football career, you kind of you're not sure what you can do. Uh, I mean, you can you can play football, yes, you can score goals, you can defend, you can be a good midfielder, you can be a good goalkeeper. But what have you actually learned? And uh, I think one of my advantages was, was that during I played, and that's why I started off when I came to Vienna because I was a lot. I was there in my football career. I knew what I was a part of. So I remember. If, if Norway won a game, I, I, I was there. I saw myself a bit from outside. I think that was an advantage for me. And, and when I talk to, to people who now kind of quit or stop their career, they, they ask me, what, what, but I, I can't do anything. Well, you can do a, good, a couple of things. First of all, you are one of the best in the world uh, switching on three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, which is good. You know how to prepare yourself. You know how to be disciplined. You know how to... To, to work under pressure. You, you know how to get feedback from not only people at the stadium, but all the press and all around that. So, so I think I, that was an advantage for me to, to go into my second part of my, my career. I was retired when I was 35, which is quite, well, by all standards, quite early to be a, a, a retired person. So yeah, I've, I've enjoyed my life after, and I, I'm not one of them. There's a lot of my colleagues uh, from from the past who kind of 
think back on their career, well, I remember, I, I would love to score a couple of more goals. I would love to, to have the, the, the stand or the crowd standing up, shouting my name or being a part of a dressing room, winning a football game. But then again, you have to find substitutes for that. You have to find, uh, you, you have to achieve, put yourself big targets to, to build up your career also outside football. And well, like I said, I got a communication company now and maybe a fifth of what I'm doing is football. But still, it's 100% because that kind of shaped me and that kind of shaped me being in four different countries playing football. That has all shaped me. So when I go into a, a, a process or something, I'm a, I'm a bit Austrian, I'm a bit British, I'm a bit German, I'm a bit Norwegian. So, so I think that is a long answer to your, uh, to your, <laughs> to your easy question. <laughs> That's a good answer, though. It's exactly what I was looking for. Um, so we'll delve back into as early as we can go, really. But I believe you were born in, and I could get the pronunciation wrong again here, but Gerson in West Norway. Is that right? Exactly. A very small village with 900 inhabitants. Uh, I was born. Uh, the, the football team in, in the village was 700 people. No, sorry, there was 900 people in the football team that was in seventh division. So uh, was based on my dad, who was in the oil business. Who, then he was six weeks on the ship and six weeks at home. And then my two uncles, they always took me to the games. And I was one of those kids who traveled to every game. I watched every game. I trained more or less all the time. And it's a funny because uh, in, in la later years, I've been to a lot of the different academies all around the world. And when I was 14, my dad said to me, uh, Jan, you know, we have a trouble getting a coach for your team. And I say, yeah, I know that. I, and uh, you, but you know, I'm gonna be your your coach this year. And I said, but dad, that's okay because you used to play football and so on. But but you have a problem. You're away half of the year. And he said, well, that's no problem because the the guy, the, the captain on the other shift, uh, a guy called Olaf, uh, he will uh, he will be the coach when I'm away. And I said to him, well, then we have a couple of other problems because he has never played football. He's never been a coach. And so I always used that phrase to say that five years before I made my full debut for Norway in the national team, I had Olav from the other shift as my coach, which, which tell a story about sometimes it's not always being at the great academies or whatever, all the setups. I think it's all about the passion for football, how, how good you are training yourself and look after yourself. And I, and I said that to Manchester City when I was there. When I checked now, I saw that Manchester City Academy had less players in a World Cup than Gushkin had, and we had 900 inhabitants. So there's a lot of, like we say, a lot of roads going to Rome. When you were sort of growing up and stuff like that, then before maybe you even realized you had like a talent that could make it professional, who was the players that you looked up to? Was there any specific icons or idols that you had that you would have liked to have emulated at that point? Well, in Norway, since 1969, we had a match of the day every Saturday. So for us, four o'clock, your three o'clock time, we had uh, one game uh, every weekend. And, and when I was seven, uh, this is in 74, I remember the first game I ever looked, that was best Germany against uh, Holland in the World Cup final. Johan Cruyff was a big player there. Uh, so I, that, I remember that World Cup vaguely. And then I remember the first game I saw was uh, Leeds United against the Bayern Munich. Uh, Bayern Munich, of course, winning uh, unfair because Leeds was very good. And so I kind of followed Leeds from a, from an early age. And and then it was Billy Bremner, uh, a, a ginger, small Scottish guy. It can't be different, more different than 
than um, <laughs> how what I turned into. But they, they were like the first players I followed. But I followed a lot of English or British players because uh, we, have, we had these games and also I collecting all these uh, football cards. So you started your professional career at uh, 17. Uh, I think you played with a team called Horde. And again, it's got the, the letter in there, so pronunciation may be incorrect. But um, you enjoyed a really successful start to your career at a very young age. Um, great scoring record. How enjoyable were like the early days of your career, like 17, 18, 19? Well, I think I, I went uh, uh, a normal path that a lot of uh, players in my age or age group or my generation did. The, the, that was the biggest regional side. They were in the second league of, uh, of Norwegian football. Uh, they used to be up there. They were one of those uh, uh, clubs who, who came from nowhere when, when I grew up and they were like so big in the area. And uh, to play for them was a natural next step for me. And um, when I came there, some of the old players, they were now the coaches. And that was very inspiring for me. And, and when I, I made my debut when I was 17 and I, I started scoring goals. But, but, but I was 18 and more or less exploded. A bit coincidently, because we got a, a, a coach in, a, a guy called Ingjerd. He came on and he learned us how to systemize uh, the training on our own. Uh, the school was, my school was, that was a kind of an academy without that being being called that at that time. And I, I was able to, to train with them every morning and then go back to school and, and so on. So I was very, very professional from when I was 18 year of age. And yeah, so it was a good time. And, and I think that in that season, I scored 25 in 22 games, which for an 18 year old was uh, uh, very good. And uh, yeah, but, but I was always one of those who, who then, then I looked for the next level. And I, I never had a lot of time to kind of be comfort on one level. Looking through, obviously, after that period, I think you had a season with, with Hamcam, but it was really sort of Lillestrom, I think, where you sort of really begin to get noticed and really sort of maybe matured as a footballer. I think it was 20 goals in, in 33 games. You got to the, or helped them qualify for the uh, UEFA Cup, as it was then. But I think it was also around that time you started making an impression on the international stage. I think you scored your first international goal against Brazil of all teams in a, I think it was a 1-1 draw and a friendly. But it's obviously a really big moment when you start playing for your national team. I can't imagine it. But what is it like not just starting, but scoring and then scoring against Brazil for your first goal? Yeah, well, it's unbelievable. And, and I, I, one of the reasons, I went to a Hamcam at that time because I... My favorite team, and talking about my Norwegian favorite team, since I was eight, Lillestrøm was the great team. They had my favorite Norwegian player, a guy called Tom Lund, who, uh, who was at that team, and he was the coach. But still, I felt I was not, I was not ready to go to Lillestrøm. They had good strikers there, but I, uh, so the competition would be hard. But it, it was more for to develop. And and then I, I played in the under twenty one national team, and I did well there. And then then I got the the chance when I was 19 to make my debut for the national team. But it was like, like you said, when I was 21, I started making an impact in the national team. And, and when I grew up, it's not like today that you can see national, uh, football games all the time on TV. In my time, when I grew up, you could have the match of the day on a Saturday, and then you look forward to the, to the national team play. And I, I was very big fan of our national, national team, not only that for Norway, but that we had a chance to to see the great stars coming to Norway, being in mind when we beat England in, in 81, it was, and 
and all the big teams coming to Norway. And, and yeah, the coincidence was that I made my first goal against Brazil, and that was um, an unbelievable feeling to be, first of all, play that we were with a with a flag on your chest that was unbelievable and then to, of, of course score a goal and I, and I scored against Brazil and then I scored in next game I think against Scotland and yeah, so it was, yeah. uh, was a fantastic time uh, and of course that made you more interesting for for uh, for players abroad because at that time Norwegian didn't have a lot of players playing abroad if I remember rightly obviously there was a, there's never a bad Brazil team <laughs> but who was in the Brazilian team that day? There was quite a few good players in that side the day you played, wasn't there? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I remember it was goalkeeper was Taparel. They had a yeah. striker called Müller, and uh, that was. A good, I have to check out that afterwards because that, that that I should know the answer to that one. But it was a, it was a good team. I mean, this is in 1988, so it's not. It can't be the best Brazilian team ever, but in. 1990, they lost in the World Cup to Argentina. I remember uh, Maradona was dribbling the whole team and more and more Brazilians wanted to tackle him. And then he gave the ball to Canidia and Canidia scored a goal. I remember that. But, but it, was a, a, it was a good team. And, um, and for Norway, to play against Brazil was a big thing. And then to make a, a, a draw was unbelievable. And, and history then will show that we, we, have, uh, we have played, I think we played Brazil three times and we beat them twice and play, had one draw, which is unbelievable. And being the highlight, of course, in 1998 when, when Norway beat him at the World Cup. Junior time at Lillestrom, just to go back ever so slightly, um, I was looking through sort of the list of managers you played under, and there was one manager that really stuck out because of maybe me being English, but Todd Grip, um, obviously the right-hand man of Sven Goran Eriksson, and I think when Sven was really at the top of his game and really, really highly respected and rated, a lot of people said that Todd Grip was one of the big, big reasons that he'd had so much success, but what was your experience of Todd Grip and how good was he? Well, Todd Grip was uh, not many games in the national team, but he changed a lot of things around. And uh, uh, he came then from the big abroad and he had, he had started off being the main coach and Sven Joran Eriksson was his assistant. And then they kind of swapped around and uh, he took me into the national team as well. And uh, I had two good coaches that I taught Grip and I had David Hay, who came from, from Celtic. Which was uh, which was also very inspiring, and and I think in a young age you need those coaches that inspire you, and you you need coaches who will tell you when they ask you or they give you praise or whatever. You know that they have seen the best players around, so it was very inspiring for me to have these kind of coaches. But but Tolgrip didn't stay along, but it it did a quite big impact in Norwegian football because he asked us to be better on attitude, and he asked us to. To look after ourselves more than maybe we we had done in Norwegian football, so I didn't have a lot of games with him, but uh, it was still uh, a friendship that we built up, and and, and I, which I could take up later when Sven was was the coach of U, the UK, or UK, the national team of England, and then I can go back and meet them, and that was, so it was a great time. Talking a little bit before we actually, you mentioned it slightly sort of earlier on, but. You made a move after the success you had at Lillestrom. You moved to um, Rapid, as we would call it, Rapid Vienna. Rapid Vienna, I think it is pronounced, um, as a 22-year-old, so really quite young. It's a big city, Vienna. It's really well-known, world-renowned. But how big of a move was that for you? And were you kind of nervous about making the move from Norway to Austria? Because they were a big side there as well, one of the biggest in that league. Well, they, they call it the record meister, the, 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 the master of trophies. They won a lot of trophies, but... 
I had a phone call on a Friday and uh, he presented himself as the vice president of uh, Rapid Vienna. Uh, I knew that I had one month earlier scored against Austria, which, which makes it uh, sometimes a bit easier. And he said, I wanted you to come to Vienna tomorrow. And I said, I can't come. And he said, how come? I mean, I, I, I will offer you a professional contract. And I said, I, I have a big problem. And he said, why? I, I said, I'm getting married. And he said, well, that is a quite good reason for not coming. And so up, up we went on a honeymoon on a Sunday going to Vienna. And I mean, I love Vienna. It's, it's a beautiful city, fantastic city to come to. And I came down there and the coach was uh, Hans Krankel uh, of his generation. He was only 38 when he went to be my manager. Uh, one of the best finisher of his generation was fantastic in the 78 World Cup also played in 1982 and played for Barcelona. And talking about inspiration to get, I mean, Hans Krankel didn't, as for a young age, and he just uh, quit as a footballer. But uh, so he had some weaknesses in terms of his coaching ability as an early age. But for me, as a striker, he was the perfect, he was the perfect coach. And uh, uh, a lot of the things that I later, or later used and I learned in Vienna and he had a lot of individual training with me. He was very hard on me uh, and he's still he's 65 now, he's still a very good friend of mine and Hans Krankel used to, when I scored I was his darling and I was his son. Uh, when, when I didn't score he's, he was one of those, either you score or you don't score and, and he, when I didn't score he said I want you to go back to the ski jumpers in Norway where I got you and, uh, and I, for example we, I remember a game we played away uh, at a club called Donovitz and I was I, I had a hat-trick and around 60th minute he took me off and I was like what, what is going on and he said you're not hungry enough for the fourth and he was probably right uh, I mean that hunger to score goals I mean that's very vital for any striker uh, to score those goals and that's why when you say I scored 200 goals league goals but for a striker I scored 308 goals including the national games and the cup games a striker never forget their goals, and, and, and Hans Krankel and Hans Krankel helped me to that positive and negative. I mean, because that that shaped me very to score the goals. Uh, and when I later was the manager of the Norwegian national team, there was a guy who came up to me and said, "I have I have a trouble, Jan, that I don't score enough goals. And, and can you give me some advice?" And I said, "Well, if you lose three two and you score the two goals." You should be as disappointed as anyone else in the dressing room. But when you can come home, you can be a bit happy that you scored the two goals. And I said, I could never do that, Jan. And I said, that, that's, that's your answer. You can never do that. And I think and Hans Krankel took me that ah, all about scoring goals, and, uh, which was good for the rest of my career. And then I later got other coaches in the national team who shaped me up also to be a team player. So it was a good mixture. So obviously, as it was in Austria, you know, went really, really well. I think you spent three years in Austria. Four, I think four. It was. four seasons. Yeah. Um, at what point did you start getting noticed in England? Because I think that was the same time the Premier League was sort of starting and things, the money was going into it. And it, the kind of the power that the Premier League now has really, really started then, um, quite literally. When did you start getting noticed by people in England and were you aware of that? I had a fantastic start on my first season. I was scoring goals for fun and we did, did, we did well in the European Cup. Uh, we knocked out Aberdeen and we played Bruges and we did, we did okay. So we had Trevor Francis, who was then the manager of Queen's, Queen's Park Rangers, uh, watching a lot of our games. I met Trevor 
uh, and he wanted to buy myself and Andy Herzog at that time, which which could have made a fantastic fee. But uh, Rapid Vienna said, when we are we're out of the European Cup, we can sit down and negotiate. And the problem was when we were out of the European Cup, Trevor Francis was was uh, fired. So so I played there for for two two seasons, and I knew after two seasons that I it's need I I need a break. I need to go to the next level. Then, but I ended up playing four seasons there, and this, and sometimes people forget that this was before Bosman. So you were all, even if you didn't have a contract, you were all depending on the club, the selling club, that he would that it would do something, which was very unfair, and that's why the Belgian Bosman took them to the court and lost, of course. Uh, but but then then I, I was lucky that after the four season, I'm, I more or less staged my farewell because I knew I couldn't play another season there. I had to go, and in those days we had these video cassettes. For the young, for the young listeners, they will no idea what it is. But uh, <laughs> we had video cassettes, and I and I taped the terrible best of a lot of goals, a lot of assists, and I sent it to all the people <clears throat> in the football industry that I knew. And one of them was David Hay, and David Hay was my coach in the, in, in Lillestrøm. And then he, he called back suddenly one day, and I sent him in big, big envelopes. And I was sending them around Europe, and then, then he called me up and he said, listen, Jan, uh, as you know, Swindon Town has just come into the Premiership. They, Glenn Hoddle, uh, the manager, he has gone to um, Chelsea. <clears throat> and if, if John Gorman, his assistant, will be the new manager, I will be the assistant, and then we'll get you. And Which was very, very big for me. I, I mean, I loved English football. And uh, I mean, so that's how, well, that's how we start with English football. Talking about um, the players, I was looking to the. the we, I was talking about Swindon the other day because I, I chatted with Nicky Summerby, funnily enough, about that time. Um, great character, great guy. Um, but I was looking through sort of the players that were in that squad, and they're so British in mentality, if you know what I mean. Like yeah. Kevin Horlock, Brian Kilkline, a young Nicky Summerby. How different was, and I don't mean in terms of the style of football, just the dressing room perhaps, how different was the English dressing room at Swindon compared to maybe. Austria and, and Norway, the one that you grew up in. That's a very good question because, uh, <clears throat> but but I somehow I came home when I come to to Great Britain or to the dressing room because I love a banter, I love a joke, and I remember my first game we played. We went to Finland of all places, you know, or Sweden, whatever Finland, and then um, uh, it is Finland because John Moncur. They thought they. Uh, had a go with a Finnish guy and they swapped clothes to breakfast so the police shouldn't recognize them. I mean, the, of course, the police didn't come. They still don't know who did it. But uh, but they came and I, I remember the first game we were playing in a lower division team and I asked them, when will we start pressuring on the on the pitch? And they just looked at me. We, we pressured all over the, over the pitch and it was quite funny for me because I played with the Norwegian national team where we were very good in tactic uh, areas. But... I love the British dressing rooms, always did. Uh, and I played for four different clubs in England. And all, all they had the same kind of characters. And it was funny in Swindon because I came to a very young team. And at the end of it, it was only Bobby Charlton we didn't sign. I mean, we signed everyone. We signed Terry Fennig, Brian Kilkline, Neil Webb, Laurie Sanchez. I mean, there was the Hall of Fame for the for and then the has-beens, more or less, because I think that was not there their best time of their career, but great, great characters. And unfortunately, I mean, we, we had the kindest manager in the world in John Gorman. And 
he loved his passing. He was so romantic, his relation to football. And, and but we conceded a lot of goals. We scored a lot of goals. And it was just an unbelievable season. Yeah, because I think it was, when you look at goals scored, actually there's quite a few players that were like, they were thereabouts in double figures or in double figures, but the goals conceded were like, I think, 100. Um, probably a little bit too open to, to my memory, but I was I was quite young. But for yourself, as it was, it was a really difficult first six months in terms of scoring goals. You'd never struggled to score goals at any point. But the first six months, you, you did. I don't think your first goal came to like January. But in those first six months, why do you think for you personally it didn't quite work out? Or why do you think you didn't quite hit the ground running? Well, I think, I think it was... A, I, in the first game, we played Sheffield United away. And I got a knock. Uh, and I had to go off. Uh, and I, but, you know, I was so eager to play in the Premiership. I should have probably taken a couple of three weeks off to heal that injury. And I... I kept on playing. I kept on playing without being 100%. I mean, this is the second year of the Premiership, but still unbelievable great players, defenders, attackers. We were struggling as well, Swindon. And, and you, you take some time when you're fit to kind of uh, to find your way in a new league, in a way, new way of playing. So I came into a very bad circle and then it didn't help that I hit the post, I hit the bar and and I was a bit unlucky with that as well. But I came into a very bad circle. And as you said, that was the first time ever I've been going without scoring goals. And, and then you also start losing you lose comp- your self-confidence. You think you have to change the way you're playing. You think you have to find a new way of playing. And you start doubting the skill. Maybe I'm good enough for, for, uh, for an Austrian club. But this is premiership and it's hard. <clears throat> the, the paradox is, of course, that at the same time, I played for the Norwegian national team, which we were doing so great. We were qualifying for, for the World Cup for the first time since 1938. So that helped on the confidence, but still it was very low. And I, I always say that my lowest point was the Christmas Eve of 1993 when I played the Wickham Reserves away for the, Norwegian, no, for the Swindon Reserves. It was the coldest day on earth. Uh, uh, and I played like one of these open pitches I was so cold and I was so terribly bad that if they, they made a rating of the game, I would have easily been a 22nd uh, of that, uh, that game. And I came home and I had my whole family. And as we know, in Scandinavia, we celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve. So I remember I opened up the doors and I, and I just opened doors. I was red. I was cold. And I said, just have a look at me now. It's not possible to get lower in my career. It's not possible. And uh, so that was a low point. But as you said, thing opened up. I, I, I became father the 12th of January and uh, somehow everything settled well. Yeah, it really did. Like, despite that sort of difficult first six months, I think the second half of the season had an outstanding record. I think it was near enough, a, a go- if not better than a goal every other game, almost, I think, 13 and 17, approximately, in a hat yeah, against Coventry. Someone told me that it was only Leticia uh, from January till the end of the season who scored more goals than in the Premiership. And so, I mean, that was a matter of the same. I mean, you should do the same analyse then, because I remember talking about Nicky Summerby, I mean, the best crosser I've ever played with, a good old-fashioned crosser of the ball. And yeah. I, remember, I, I remember a goal against Norwich, I scored two, uh, we won 3-2. And remember he crossing, and I was running away from goal, and I saw the ball, and I just kind of headed backwards, and suddenly the people 
celebrated and the goal went in. I mean, if that was early in the season, I could have been on five yards hitting the ball and the goal would, goalkeeper would do a great, great save. So, but it was also the way we played because we always played to score goals. And yeah. so, so when things changed around, I got my confidence and, uh, and uh, we were kind of getting used to also playing the Premiership. Mind you, there was, a, like you saying, a lot of British players, there was the same team more or less. I was a record signing of 500,000 pounds. And there was a, this was a more or less the same team that surprisingly I got promotion to the Premiership. And so now it was an unbelievable time. And, and as you said, we conceded 100 uh, before the last game of the season, playing Leeds United at home. We had conceded 95, and of course, we lost 5 0. <laughs> but that last six months of the season worked out perfectly. Obviously, you were already within the Norwegian team, but let's be honest, scoring that amount of goals in the Premier League is going to solidify your place. And in, in, my situ- in, in my memory, one of the best World Cups to memory. I think as it was, you obviously got into the team, went to USA in 94, and you went there as the number nine. Not just playing for your country and scoring for your country. What's it like? going to a major tournament and a memorable one as your country's number nine? Well, it's a highlight of anyone's career to play in a World Cup. And when we always discuss who are the best players in the world and people say, well, Messi won't be there because he hasn't won the World Cup. And I always say that, well, uh, I played in the World Cup. Ryan Giggs and George Best never played in, in, the, in the World Cup. So I think that can't be the only measure. But for us as Norwegians, I mean, that was unbelievable. That was uh, the time of, uh, uh, we did, we, we came in a group of death with Mexico, Ireland and Italy. And we were all in four points and we were unfortunately knocked out for, for different reasons. Maybe the main reason not being good enough, but it was very, very tight. But I think that w- that's the highlight of, uh, of our career because I played, I played 20, I had 24 caps for my country before Egil Olsen, our coach, took over and if someone then told me that we later, a couple of, three years later, we, we would win a lot of games. I mean, in the qualification group, we had San Marino was a, were a bad team, of course, but then we had Poland, Turkey, Holland and England, and we won the group and we scored the most goals. So we were an unbelievable flow and, and playing for your country at the World Cup, that was an unbelievable experience and one I will cherish the rest of my life. I was looking through the game against Italy and I was looking through the lineups to kind of remind myself and that defence, like Maldini, Costa Curta, Baresi, like how highly do those names rank when it comes to players that you played against? Because we're talking like icons of the game with Baresi and Maldini, aren't we? Yes. Uh, and, and to be fair, the, I mean, the hardest defenders I played against was it, the Italian defenders. And I, <clears throat> I had played against them uh, a couple of years before. Uh, that was coincidence in Genoa with uh, a, a, a little magician called Sola making his debut for Italy. And, and to play against them was, was, of course, very hard because the Italian defenders, they are not only very, they, they are intelligent, they are tactically good and they are all fit and technically quite good. So it was hard to play against. And, and the Italy game, we got a man sent off and we still didn't manage to create enough chances. So you, you could say that we deserve them to be, be taken out, but still it was very, very tight, and Italy going all the way to the final. And in that game with, with 10 players, they managed to score. Dino Baggio scored in a, on a free kick. But we, we, that was unbelievable. It was the World Cup. It was unbelievable warm. It was a humidity over 120%. 
And that didn't help us either because we were a team that used to, to run a lot and we didn't manage to do that. But still, uh, overall, the highlights of my career playing against, not only playing against these players, because I played against a lot of uh, big names in, in, in football. But so for me, it was all when I played against these. I remember I played Holland and I remember I was man-marked by Frank Rijkaard. And if I turned him, I met Ronald Koeman. So I, but it was not like that you were standing there waiting to, to swap shirts or ask for the autograph. I mean, that, that, that we was good at in Norway. And it was all to get, <clears throat> get hold of them, maybe get a good tackle in and, and of course, win the games. And, and we had a very good period for the Norwegian national team then. As it was, he came back to Swindon, obviously, and I, I don't think he really looked back in terms of like your goal-scoring record. But as it was, they didn't do too well in the league or maybe not as well as you would expect. Um, and Middlesbrough at the time were flying. Now, for people who don't remember it, there was only one automatic space at that time. They, I think they shortened the Premier League, if I remember. And it was that like the playoffs were 2, 3, 4 and 5, as opposed to 3, 4, 5 and 6. And only the top team went up. I'm a Sunderland fan, so I remember Middlesbrough absolutely flying that season. And that was really early memories for me. Um, Bora came in. You started really well. You won the league. But how much did you enjoy the first couple of months at Middlesbrough? Because I think you joined in the March. Was that right? I, 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 I signed for them in the, at the deadline day. <clears throat> when I came back for the World Cup, I knew that that year gonna be, would be massive for me because I, I'd been in the, I was scoring in the Premiership. I still didn't have another club, uh, but starting in championship. So, so I remember when I met my wife after we were knocked out and she was over there with my little son. He was six months. <clears throat> and I said to her, I have to train very hard now. And he said, you, you, you'll be mad. I mean, we've just been three weeks away with the national team. Yeah, but this is going to be a massive season. And I scored a lot of goals. I think I had 28 or something in the championship. And I, and I, did I expect that a premiership club come in? Yeah, I did. But I knew that football is all about timing, all about people looking at you when you do well in those games. But <clears throat> when Middlesbrough, Brian Robson came in for me, I feel very honoured, first of all, that Brian Robson came in. I mean, I mean, I, I, I said that always that I, I more or less said yes before we came to Robson. But but it's it was a matter of when well, I swapped clubs quite often in England. But it's a matter of if you if if your club agree a fee with another club, then you know the train has gone. And then it's all about looking at the project and and that project be a lot of defined by Middlesbrough at that time, but. They had this project. I remember Brian Robson and uh, Viv Anderson showing me Riverside Stadium. You know, you knew they were going places. Uh, I played for Swindon against them. I think I scored against them a couple of times as a Swindon player. But I still thought they were the best team in the championship. So, so it was a good calculation, and I, I didn't expect to go to to another team in the championship. But but still, you could see that Middlesbrough had a great, great chance, although it was very tight to come there. And, and it was amazing to be a, uh, not only, I, I came there for 1.3 million pounds, which was a record signing for, for Middlesbrough. And I, I think that started off the, uh, the, the big, like Bonanza, getting players to, to, to Middlesbrough. And it was, it was fantastic to be a part of Ayrson Park then going over to Riverside Stadium. So to be a part of that old time going into the new time, it was, uh, it, was, uh, it was a great, great experience. And I knew Middlesbrough's history. And I've always made sure that when I come to a club, I always learn their history. I always love to learn places, different places, the regions. And, 
it was an amazing time because, like you said, we had Sunderland there, we had uh, Middlesbrough, we have Newcastle. I mean, in this small space and more or less sell out everywhere. The passion we know about, we will we see that around the regions, wherever league they are on. But uh, that was an unbelievable time, and it was start of an unbelievable time. Yeah, it really was. It was all of the northeast were doing really, really well at that point, and it was only a season later Sunderland obviously joined in the Premiership. But and I suppose I'm biased because I'm from the northeast. I I work for Middlesbrough Women. I support Sunderland. I've lived most of my life in the northeast, so I suppose I'm biased. But you've played in a few different cities, some really passionate footballing cities. But how does the northeast compare, and how intense is it in comparison to elsewhere that you've played? Well, I, lo- I played for a lot of clubs and I, I tried to use the metaphor and I would love to have that metaphor as a fact because, because I've been married like for 100 years. So I, 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 if I compared all the clubs to, to women in your life, then if they're all women, they will have something. But of course, uh, when we came up northeast, I mean, I was fortunate in my career. I would love to have played for, well, played for trophies and played for the big clubs as anyone else. But I was fortunate, if I see the, uh, my, my spell in England, that I played for a Swindon team that was up for the first time ever. I haven't been there later. Uh, Middlesbrough, at that time, going for the big project, the Middlesbrough, the modern Middlesbrough. I went to Sheffield United, which was a big club, and we lost the playoff of final, of, uh, unfortunately. And then Barnsley, which, which, which is an amazing story that Barnsley, of all places, could go up in the Premiership. And it was just like watching Brazil. And they were very happy irony of that. But <clears throat> going up, I knew about the Northeast. I knew about the passion for football. And I, and I think that, is not, that should not be underestimated because I think that is the big strength of this area. And I, and I think that when you, when you talk about British football, when you talk about passion for football, sometimes that is a cliche. But, but I, what I saw straight away when I came to Middlesbrough, that was not a cliche. And that's what I take the whole Northeast, because that is something about the people there. The people there are so passionate about the football. The football is that what matters. You can have places where football matters, but that the whole society is more or less around the football club. That was amazing. And like I said, I was, I was lucky enough to play some games at Ayrson Park. Uh, I scored my first goal for Middlesbrough at Ayrson Park. And, and, and then you just felt that way also. That was um, a kind of an example, a metaphor of how, where the Premiership went. Going from an old stadium, going into a new one, a newly built stadium. And, and that revol- they call it the Robo Revolution or whatever. And, uh, and to be a part of that was amazing. It really was like a a, revenu- a revolutionary time, sorry, for Middlesbrough. Is I don't think in my lifetime Middlesbrough have ever had such a project and done so well. But looking through the players you played with, you played a lot of the time with uh, Janino in sort of the second season once you went up. You played with him really closely. But who did you most enjoy playing with? Like as a player, who taught you the most? I think when I came there, I mean, one of the great reasons for that Middlesbrough team being good and being able to promote, there was a very good team atmosphere. There was a there was a good balance between young players who want to get better uh, and the, that British attitude. You have a Jamie Pollock and, and Robin Muster, different type of players, but still kind of the skill you needed. And then you had a big Nigel Pearson at the back who would go through brick walls. You you had different 
kind of uh, striker types, and you have a Alan Moore who's kind of kind of dribble his way through, and and so so that team was was I would say based on a on a British collective way of thinking. Then of course things changed, and 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 I I, I played with uh, Nick Barnby and Craig Hignett and. We, we, Brian Robson made, a, uh, I think, a very good way of playing that we played with one striker up front, me as a number nine, and then you had these two, Higgy and, and Barnby, like, uh, running around me somehow. Um, remember the first game we played at Highbury in a 1-1 draw in the Premiership, and the goal was Barnby, I guess. They played up to me, and I flicked it on to Barnby, and he, he made that goal. Uh, and I think that was typical for that time. Of course, then we, then we got Juninho on, and, and Juninho, I mean, the best player I've ever played with, of course. Uh, and Mark Schwarzer, Schwarzer did an interview with him on podcast, and he asked for questions. And I asked, I asked him to ask Juninho uh, how it was like to have a Norwegian make him his debut so good because of his pass uh, in that first game. But, but Juninho came on, and, and of course, that took, took our team to, uh, to another level. Um, we had to change a lot. It took some time to understand Juninho because he was so good. I mean, he was not only yeah. in, in games. He was so good in games as well. He took on people and it was just like, it was amazing to be a part of Juninho's uh, progress. I mean, winning the World Cup and he's been back at Middlesbrough like 400 times. So he, he loved the area and the area, of course, loved Juninho. And, and I think that was... There's not many signings that and enlightening more a region that he did. I mean, of course, Alan Shearer coming back to New, Newcastle, the, the, the uh, son who comes home and, and all that kind of things. But, but he was so different. He was so different of the region. He was so different of the team. And we, that we ending up signing Juninho, it was just like unbelievable. And I, and I remember this little man because I, I lived in this castle uh, a Wilton Castle for like six or seven months, and when I came there, there there was all security all over the place, and I and I went in and and, and I found this little Brazilian sitting there that we've just signed, and it was just like it was it was adventurous adventurous to be a part of that. With um, Middlesbrough, it was you talked before about a few of the characters that were in the team, some real real big characters, you know, Nigel Pearson, probably for right or wrong reasons, one of the biggest. Um, I like him personally, but. Do you have any funny stories from your time when you were at Middlesbrough of any particular moments that stand out? Because it was such a charismatic dressing room at that point. Well, I, I, I mean, I mean, you don't know where to start, and I think there was there was a fun every day. And you were, we were talking about we signed Branco, uh, and Branco won the World Cup of Brazil in 1958. We thought, and uh, he came on with a couple of kilo, and I think I'm nice, no overweight. I remember once in the, in, the, in the bus, I asked him, how old are you really, Branko? How old are you really? And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not asking how old you think you are, but how old are you really? And he, and he looked at me and I said, yeah, and I am, um, I am 30, 30, 31. And it was like, can I get away with that? Uh, but he was a character, of course. And uh, he, after every training session, I mean, we were... We were we were bussing around the area to train. We didn't have our own training pitch. And, and he always took the microphone and, and, and uh, made a kind of a, a, a commentating on the training. And he could then say to Mikkel Beck, who was my friend, still is my very good friend. And he said, ah, Mikkel Beck today, very bad, very bad, Mikkel Beck, very bad today. And Mikkel, 
and Mikkel was getting redder and redder and more and more angry. And I said, don't bite, don't bite. And, and he was, uh, yeah, he was unbelievable. And, and of course, then we got Ravanelli and Brian Robson put me in a room with Ravanelli uh, for some reason. And I, and I guess that was a language thing because I could speak German, I could speak English, Norwegian. So somehow we managed to have a language. And, uh, and the funny thing is Ravanelli is still a good friend of mine and we see each other. In, and he's a bit better in English now, but he was like, and, and the players didn't have, they had too much respect of him. I mean, I was used to play with the different characters uh, for the national team, but I think that was an advantage for me. And, and, and Ravanelli was sitting in, um, uh, I've, 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 I think I've done this story before, but we were playing Aston Villa away. And Brian Robson was doing a team, team talk and he said, uh, I want you to, uh, Ravanelli, what I want you to do up front is this and that. So I was sitting in, in, in like row three and I was sitting, uh, now next to me was sitting Paldini, who was his agent and also translator. So he was sitting in in the, in the meeting. So Robson says to, uh, to Ravanelli, is that okay, Rav? And Rav uh, went into a rant in Italian. And I mean, you don't have to be very good in Italian to understand that he he was like, it was catastrophe, uh, attacante, no, no structure, uh, no different, bay and bay, ba 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 And he was going on for ages, and I would start smiling, and I was laughing, and I, I just had to, to cover my, my smile with my fingers. And, and then when he was finished with his rant, uh, the only question from Robson was, is that okay, Rob? And when he was finished with his rant, the Paldini looked at Robson and said, yes. That was all he said. <laughs> and, and Ravanelli did that all the time. And, and Ravanelli, we, we played, we were three strikers. I played as a number nine. Then Ravanelli came, uh, a Champions League winner. He signed Mikkel Beck, who was this, a very talented uh, Danish national player. And he came to the club. So I, I said as Lady Diana, it was a bit crowdy up there. And, uh, and um, so, but Ravanelli, he, 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 he wanted to swap partner. He wanted, he wanted me to play with him up front. So, so, so he was standing in the dressing room, and I, and I felt I didn't, didn't feel good about that because Ravanelli was living in, in the other village. So I saw him privately, uh, him and his family, and also Mikkel Beck. And like I said, Mikkel is still a very good friend of mine. And he celebrated Christmas with us and all that. But then Ravanelli went into a rant in the dressing room, and he said, but Jan, I speak manager. I say... Jan play with me, uh, 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 Mikkel Beck for me, Serie C. Uh, uh, <laughs> the only problem is when he did his rant, Mikkel Beck was also standing there. <laughs> I said to Ravanelli, you can't speak like that. Um, then we played a couple of three games together and uh, I still, we, somehow I, I managed to be friends with both of them. You did well. You did well to keep that like, friendship with both. Well done. Um, as it was, uh, you moved to Sheffield United, uh, sort of around 18 months, I think, later after that season or so. You played under Howard Kendall, obviously huge, huge character. Um, do you have any good memories of Howard Kendall? Because I don't think anyone's ever spoke badly of him. Howard was amazing. And I remember I, I wanted to, to walk. I, don't, I didn't want to leave Middlesbrough. I, I mean, I love to, to play there and love to live in the area. But I had to play football games. And, yeah. uh, and the way to do is that is to be a substitute, come on in a cup game, score, turn your shirt around, show on your uh, number and name and do like this, knock on your chest and pointing at the manager. And three days later, I was in Sheffield. 
But uh, then Howard Kendall called me. He, he called me in the parking lot. I remember outside Riverside Stadium and said, Jan, this is Howard Kendall speaking. I want to take you to Sheffield United and I want to take you on loan. And I said, it was great to speak to you, Mr. Kendall, but I am not going alone. I mean, you have to buy me or I, I, I need to have a permanent view on my career. And then he called and said, I'll call back Robbo. And then he called back 20 minutes later and said, I talked to Robbo. We agreed a fee if you can get yourself down to Sheffield. And, and I had a fantastic time at Sheffield, at Sheffield United. I scored unbelievable lot of goals in a short period of time. And Howard Kendall was, like you saying, he was, he was a larger-than-life uh, kind of character. He was unbelievable. We went to away games. He took off all his clothes except the underwear. And he came walking down the, the bus and he wanted to play cards. That's what he did. And, 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 I, and I, I was more in Middlesbrough when I played for Sheffield United than I was when I played for Middlesbrough. Because if we won a game on Saturday, was, he would say, I see you on Tuesday. We came in Tuesday. We trained Tuesday and Wednesday. And then he said, see you Friday. And then we played a game. And, but it was, it, was unbelievable. it was so fun to play for. And he wanted, to, wanted us to go forward. He wanted us to explore ourselves. He was the goal, good old English school. I mean, there was not a lot of tactical movement in training. We played 12 against 12 on a big pitch, and he joined in with his, with his then slowly growing stomach, obviously. And, uh, but he loved to play his game, and uh, he's one of those characters I miss. Uh, and uh, it, was, it was a great experience to play for him. Listening to Don Hutchison, um, and he was talking about how good that Sheffield United side was and how it probably should have got promoted automatically at the time. And I think there was a few results sort of March, April time that maybe knocked you into the playoffs. Wembley's an amazing experience. And as a fan, I've lost a game in the last minute, in the last seconds, really quite recently. Um, but as a player, what is it like playing at such a big, iconic stadium, but then losing it in the way that you did? But the problem, we were not good prepared. That's the problem. Uh, and uh, we were not prepared. Uh, I'm just saying that, uh, that I... Uh, uh, we were not prepared. I mean, we, we knocked out Ipswich. We was 1-1 in the first game. We went to Ipswich and we did a, we did, did a great game. <laughs> and after the game, we went three days to Isle of Man, uh, which is not, for me, the best place to go if you're going to prepare for a player final. So I think that the, the game against Crystal Palace was an anticlimax because when we lost that game, and that really <clears throat> there is a photo of, of, his, of us when, when we were, people were lying on the pitch very disappointed that we lost the game and I'm just standing up because I was thinking we didn't do enough. I mean, we maybe would have lost even if we were well prepared because that was a good Crystal Palace team, good organized by Steve Koppel. But we didn't do enough. Uh, but, but as you say, that was a very good team. And uh, some of them left us then because they went to Everton because they, and Howard Kendall went to Everton. But yeah. that, that kind of team that we fell apart when, when, they sold me and Brian Dean on the same day, which the, the Sheffield United fans called the Black Thursday. And they sold us both on the same day. And I remember I was up in Barnsley and, and they said they had sold Brian Dean to, to Portugal as well. So I thought they were only getting me off because they had enough strikers. But then, then they sold us. And, and I think for Sheffield United fans, that felt, that felt very bad for them because we, we lost the playoff final, but still we start, <coughs> started the next season well as well. And we were up there. We had a a young, inspiring manager in Nigel Spackman, who was the assistant of, of Howard Kendall. So, so, so for me, it was, in, again, a matter of bury away, 2-0 win, I've scored a goal, I'm in the shower, I've scored a goal, uh, 
Charlie Green, who later went up to range, is not very popular in Scotland either. He went into the shower and he said, uh, Jan, we have agreed a fee with uh, Barnsley. And I, okay, Barnsley, Premiership, I'm 31. I can still live at home in Sheffield. Okay. And he said, can you speak to Danny Wilson tomorrow? And I said, okay. He turned around and I said, Charlie, yeah. And he turned around. I want all my money paid up. And he said, okay. And that was 25 seconds. And, and then I was back in the Premiership. Did you enjoy your time at Barnsley? Very much so, because uh, at that time, I didn't play for the Norwegian national team anymore. So it was a, a bit of bonus to have another crack at the, the Premiership. I knew, of course, that, that we, it was going to be hard because it was, it was uh, also a newly promoted team. We were, we were struggling. But there was enough games to save ourselves. And I thought that the only thing I can do, I can do what I can best is to score goals. And I, I, I managed to score, I think, six goals at the end of the season in the Premiership. Yeah. But well, those standards are quite good, but it wasn't good enough at the end. But I was, I'm very glad that I, uh, I went to Barnsley because somehow I didn't finish my career in England for a, with, a, with, a, with a typical British outsider kind of club. And later they've done a, a video or a film, a, a movie about that time. And if you, if you haven't seen it, you should see it because I think that, I mean, you, you will have a documentary now with your Sunderland till I die. But you, this is somehow the same in terms of uh, a Barnsley area that was very uh, the consequences of Margaret Thatcher's and all the mining industry and and then this Barnsley team being the hope coming up to the premiership playing with the big boys traveling around the UK to or England to to watch their team in the premiership so yeah it was a, it was a great great time and I was I was good for me to have another crack at the premiership so I've got two more questions because, like I said, it's really hard to condense your career so much. But we've we've done well. We've done well. Um, you moved to to Frankfurt, um, who are obviously doing really well in the Bundesliga at the moment. And I'm I'm a big Bundesliga fan. I've been to a few different grounds in Germany, and I just love I love the atmosphere. I think it's brilliant. Um, but you played under Felix Magath. Mm-hmm. Now Felix Magath, when he came to Fulham, so many stories for so many different reasons. But in Germany. Very, very highly rated. It did really, really well. But what was your experience like with Felix Magath? Well, when I came to Germany, it was also a dream come true because I, when I was in Austria, I followed German football all the time. So I knew a lot about German football and I know the, knew the characters there. And I had two of them. I had a guy called Jörg Berger, who was well known for saving uh, clubs, which, which I was a part of, I think, the biggest miracle of them all in 1999 and I, and, I'm, and I was lucky enough to score the decisive goal but still it wasn't enough for Berg and he was fired and who did we take on then was Felix Magath and there were like hundred stories about him already I had my teammate Andreas Herzog who I played with in Vienna he had in Nevada Bremen and I remember I would play the game and he was nearly crying on my shoulders I can't play for this man anymore I have to leave because first of all he was, there was a lot of running and all those kind of things but he had a he had a funny way of kind of kind of uh, get people it was an old-fashioned way of leadership i mean leadership today is differently now it's involved people it's uh, what's your opinion everybody have their say nobody has their say but felix Magath. the funny thing is that i i'm still and i and i guess now slowly i have to say that it's a skill of mine because no felix Magath is a, a good not a friend but i see him and we were at, in a german magazine like three, four months ago, and it was great to, 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 to be with him. And now I can tell the stories why he's there. But I remember the first, first of all, 
all the stories at Fulham is probably true. And I remember William Quist, who was a player at, at Fulham, and I, I made an article for The Telegraph, I think, and I was, I, I was doing all the, the funny stories. I kind of made them a positive way eh, because I, I would respect any coach that I have and I, I won't never kind of tell bad stories about them. But, but I, I made him into a, a funny thing. And I remember William Quist, and I didn't know William Quist, and he was, I was working in the Champions League and he kind of pitched side and he came running over to me and he was, he was working for Danish TV and he said, Jan, 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 I follow you on Twitter and I read that article in, in The Telegraph. I thought nobody can be that mad. But listen, Felix Magat is that mad. And we were all laughing. And, and I remember he came, he came in the first team meeting and he, had a, he, had a, he has a way and he did that in Bayern Munich. Remember, this is a coach who won the double two years in a row for Bayern Munich. So this is not a bad coach, but he's just a different coach from maybe yeah. some, some people would say from another area, but it's still functioning. And he came on and he always take his tea and then he's taking a long time and the old players are sitting waiting for him. And he's at the top of the table, and then he take a big cake always, and he's eating that very slowly, very slowly. And then after three, four or five minutes, with totally quiet uh, atmosphere, he, he turned at the team and he said to one of the old defenders, and he said, uh, Mr. Binderwald, what are you doing here? And, I mean, you can understand that question in two ways. Either what are you doing here, or what are you doing here, piss off. So, and of course, a player with, not, not a, with a new coach, you will think, always the latter. So he said, uh, well, 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 and this and that. And so he, I'm a defender and so on. Okay, okay. And he's still doing his tea and eating his cake. And then he said to the second one, he said, um, uh, Sampach, what are you doing here? And Sampach said, well, he was a midfielder. And said, I'm running forward and I'm running backwards. And he said, okay, good to know. You're running forward and you're running backwards. And now I start smiling because I have a problem that I always start I, I always have to, I find that, I found it so funny. And I hope that he will ask me again as a third. And then he said, and then of course he said, Fjordov, what are you doing here? And I said, um, well, boss, uh, normally I score goals, but I haven't scored enough. So the other guys was fired and now you're here. And then he never asked me again. And um, because he knew, he knew that I could, could, could answer, but it was unbelievable. He took an, on us. We were in Portugal in training camp and we were running so long that the people kind of lost lost their mind and we were learning for one and a half hour on the beach and we were stretching went into the bus and then we we had one man missing and uh, we, nobody dared to say magat because this was his second session and he's and, and and i thought i have to tell him we're missing a player and i went forward in the bus and i said uh, boss we are missing one player and he said how can we miss a player so we had to turn around the bus on the big beaches and we were traveling around on the beaches looking for this player. And then suddenly we saw a guy who kind of had uh, crashed into the sand. He was blood all over the place and he, and he came up like Robinson Crusoe coming on the beach and we kind of saved him and got it into the bus. But that was, that was the start of, a, of his spell at, 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 at Frankfurt. But he saved us. He saved us and we... We didn't. We, we were not relegated. So Felix Magat uh, did his, his thing. So final question. Obviously, uh, you moved back to Norway as it was. You went to uh, Stabæk and then eventually came back to Lillestrøm. But you retired at 35. And it's a question I ask a, a lot of my guests if they are no longer in football. But when do you know it's the right time to hang your boots up and say, you know, that's the end of my career? Well, uh, nobody could answer you properly, I guess. But 
for me it was a matter of I was 34 uh, I guess 34 I was playing Germany and I had my family and now I had two I have three kids now but I had two kids at the time um, my wife had been traveling with me all around uh, Europe playing and, and, and I felt it was time to go home I had a chance to go to Nuremberg. They offered me a two-year contract. And somehow I, I asked myself, I believe I didn't go back to England because I could have played in England for a couple of more years. But you know how life is. You just get a feeling that now it's time to kind of settle. And you, 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 you go from like a circus artist. You're going from place to place. And it's hard for your family. And I, and I thought, should I retire 100% or should I play football in Norway? And I remember my wife said, are you sure that you want to move back? And then at the same time, stop playing. And I thought, oh, yeah, you're probably right. So I went to, to a, a club called Stabæk, who was like the upcoming team in Norway. I got a great contract. And yeah, well, I thought I was feeling to go, go into that club could be okay. The trouble is, of course, when you go from 50,000 people in the Bundesliga, and then you go to a, a club that has a crowd of 4,000, which was the people who was in our parking lot when after the game we wanted to sign autographs. And I'm, I'm not saying this to say that I, that was something wrong with the club because that was something wrong with me. Because if you, if you, no matter which level you want to play on, if that's Norway, England or Germany and Austria, you have to be 100%. And if you lose, and especially for a player like myself, if I lose that 100% passion, that, uh, that uh, goal to be as good as I can, and you can only lose 5% and you're gone. And it was typical for me when coming to Stabæk. I played it was just one season, although I had a two-year contract. It was typical for me that I, I did well in a game I kind of fancied. Uh, it was not like I was, uh, I was having a go at kind of saying that I have a bad, bad attitude. It was just like slowly get into you. And then you, then you realize that it's time to, to get a go. And you understand that. What motivated you the last season was that you played in the Bundesliga and you know, you knew that if they, if you didn't do well, they would eat you, uh, more or less, because you play with so many good players. So, so maybe I shouldn't have done that in Norway. But then again, I got a lot of friends in Stabæk. Uh, I got a hat trick. I one of the oldest players who scored a hat trick in Norway. Uh, my son and daughter could see me play. Uh, and then I came back, to, like you said, and go back to Lillestrøm. So somehow the circle was ended and uh, coming back to Lillestrøm, which was my club. I never wanted to be a sport director. I never wanted to be a manager. But when, when Lillestrøm asked me then later that if I wanted to be a sport director, I said yes. And that's why I also said yes to do that for the Norwegian national team because it meant a lot to me. So somehow the circle was coming to an end. Jan, you're a fantastic value. Thank you very much for the interview. <laughs> Thank you.